Welcome to Sunstorm, where we get real about what's happening in the world and what we're doing about it, because we are the light in the storm. Hi, I'm Ai-jen Poo. And I'm Alicia Garza. And joining us today on the pod, we have a woman who I and you and we are obsessed with. <laughs> obsessed. Jenny Yang. Jenny is one of the funniest people we know. She's an amazing comedian, performer, writer, and way back when, a labor organizer too. If you're not following her on Twitter, you are missing out. A hundred percent. She is one of us. She's family. She's folks. She's friends. Please welcome Jenny. Oh my goodness. I am so excited to be on this podcast. Oh, this is my dream. Just beautiful, intelligent movement women out here shaping history. I'm loving the fact that you and me and AP finally are getting to sit down. I feel like we've been wanting you since season one, but you know, pandemic brings people together. <laughs> I mean, listen, we're going to look for silver lining sometimes. Yes. All right. So we know you, we love you dearly. For people who don't know you out there, I'm sure people introduce you for your shows all the time. What's the best intro you ever got? I'm Jenny Yang. I am a stand-up comedian, a writer, an actor, and host. And then I do consider myself an organizer of people. You totally you are. Know? Um, in the context of you know working in Hollywood and comedy, I organize comedians and audiences. That's how I think of my work. But also, I'm an immigrant from Taiwan. Uh, I'm the youngest of three with much older brothers. I'm obsessed with like the self-care industrial complex, food culture, politics and pop culture, obviously, and like karaoke. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like that's like a, the fullest intro you're going to get. Like, karaoke. Under two Wait, what's <laughs> your, like, what's your, what really are your karaoke go-to songs? Oh, listen, any R&B from the 90s. You know what I mean? I feel like facts. that is what... <laughs> facts on anything facts on facts. That, Anything that I grew up listening to in Southern California, you know, where you had little like images and dreams of like smooching with your crush uh, at the dance. So like a little Brian McKnight, maybe oh, a little Tony Braxton, yes. uh, you know, yes. it's just, you know, Japanese people <laughs> and East Asians took karaoke for a reason. You know, our shit is repressed and we're like, we need to sing it out. You know what I mean? Big time. Big time. <laughs> Alicia's yes. karaoke game is strong. I don't know if you know this about really? her. She can hold her own like in yeah. a karaoke bar in Hawaii with all the Asians. <gasps> all the Asians. That's oh, true. yeah. It's okay, true. See? I was grounded a lot as a kid. So I listened to the radio obsessively. And I know all the words to every song that was put out in the 90s. We could actually do this thing. Let's 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 really get it popping. We're going to do this thing. I just have uh. to ask, like, you said the self-care industrial complex. And now I'm so curious. What is that? To me, it's like my love-hate relationship with all the products and practices uh -huh. and discussions around <laughs> how we need to be taking care of ourselves, you know, especially as women, yep. you know, um, there's, there's all these sort of like recommendations for how to live our best life. And I think, I think we're only now deepening that conversation amongst each other mm -hmm. about what that really means mm -hmm. in, in a way that's not just simply consumerist or superficial, yep. you know what I mean? So so yeah, you know, we can enjoy the face masks. We can enjoy the like weird jade rollers that you're obviously appropriating from some culture, mm. you know, but what else does that really mean on a deeper level? And I feel like, you know, I, I think along with the political awakening that happened in 2016 for a lot of people, that's been connected 
to an awakening around what true self-care means so that we could counterbalance the despair that you might feel because of the world, you know? Oh, yeah. Because it's deeper, right? Because it's deeper than just, oh, I'm stressed at work and I don't have time on the weekends for myself. It, It is now for more people outside of political movements, right? It's hitting them like, oh, there is a problem that I might need to be responsible for outside of my immediate life. One that I can't solve alone, that it's actually a collective. Oh, exactly. A collective issue and challenge. I I feel like it's been a huge upheaval, you know, in our culture. And like, that's why it's like, of course we need iGen and Alicia to have a podcast, you know, because you're in it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I will say, though, that we are proudly outside of the self-care industrial complex because we believe self-care yeah. is winning. So yeah. I love that. Of course, winning is self-care because you're organizers. So you're like winning is everything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so speaking of laughs and you're giving me deep belly laughs this morning, which is what I need. <laughs> We're in the middle of a global pandemic. I mean, this is like a perfect time to be in conversation with you. But I really want to know, and I, I just have to ask every comedian who I talk to, like, what is making you laugh these days? Oh, God, give us, that's give us the scope. Yeah. You know, I'm going to tell you this. These TikTok kids. Yes. Oh. <laughs> I got to tell you, this is like next level. Like the TikTok kids, they are the product of who we are now. Mm. You know, they are political. They are deep thinking. They are synthesizing that into these short bursts of energy and creativity. And and it's really powerful to me to see how Gen Z are out here educating people. Like, really, like they're doing a lot of massive work. And so I think we should not underestimate the, the entertainment value and funny value of like TikTok teens. I'm older than people think I am because I need to keep it that way in Hollywood because I'm still on camera sometimes. But, you know, the honest truth is like I started in politics and I think we all know politics prior to hashtag Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. even now still, mm-hmm. the movement sometimes was not adapting. Let's be honest. Facts. Like, you know what Facts. I mean? Things, was getting, things were getting a little ossified, a little dusty. <laughs> you know, there were a bunch of, you know, hippie activists who went on to be executive directors and funders and like just keeping things like kept out. Yeah. And like I left nonprofits mm-hmm. and I left the movement for a mm-hmm. reason, you know? I was a young buck trying to like be a part of the change. And then once I got to be a director in a labor union, I was like, fuck this. I don't look up to these people at all, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. And and so I forgot what I was saying, but I just need people to know that. We were talking about what makes you laugh. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. And so for me, I feel like I laugh constantly about politics. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, you know, yeah. this is, I feel like it's both knowing how the sausage is made, but also like just on the face of it. It is theater. Like people always ask me like, oh, what's the, well, how's it been the, you know, transitioning from politics to comedy? And I'm like, oh, it's the same. It's the uh-huh. same. Okay. It's about power, uh-huh. how you control it. It's about communicating. It's theater. Yep. You know, yep. uh, it's like building relationships, whether immediate or not, it's telling your story. And so to me, it's like, do I want to try to, you know, have a humorless experience in the political work that I was doing that didn't give me freedom, you know, or uh, do I want to have more freedom to be myself and like talk about the things I care about and make people think about the things I care about? Did you always want to be a performer? I feel like as a little Asian immigrant girl, no one's like, girl, you should grow up to be a professional performer. Like that's not not put in our heads. 
No, it's not. And so I'm not one of those people who are like, you know, Judd Apatow, who's like, you know, I was nine years old and transcribing uh, Johnny Carson. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> which is amazing. I'm like, what an, what an education. Like, fuck. Like, dude, thank you for your service. Like, you're obviously this treasure trove of comedy now. I, I grew up trying to be a good student because from five years old, when I moved to America, my mom was a garment worker. And me asking her, why are you so tired all the time? Why are you blowing your snot out and it's gray? Mm -hmm. She said, well, that's why we're in America, so that you don't have to work as hard as I do if you get good grades and listen to your teachers. Mm. That is your job. The fear of God was in me at five. And I was like, Mm -hmm. okay, mom, that is my job. Mm -hmm. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Like, so that's all I focused on. But when I look back, I have two much older brothers that exposed me to comedy of the 80s and 90s that I definitely should not have been exposed to. (laughs) And, but you know what I'm saying? But like, I remember Eddie Murphy. I remember, you know, Margaret Cho. I remember like, just like being a child. So um, I grew up loving attention. I'll admit that. But I channeled that, any sort of performative energy into what was considered legitimate, like school, <laughs> good grades, activities that'll get me to a good college. So, but I do say like my first comedy performances was running for student government. I was a big student government nerd. I was like leadership, but the way that you get elected was through these like massive school assemblies where you had to tell your speech. And I knew if I could make them laugh, they're gonna vote for me. Uh-huh. You know what I'm saying? you, Jenny, because earlier you said that you left the movement to become a comedian, but I'm not actually ready to let you off the hook here because you are still out here advancing the movement and stepping into crises or nonsense in ways that are necessary and needed. (laughs) And we can chuckle about it the whole way. So I do (laughs) want to talk about a thing you did that brought together organizing and comedy um, Mm -hmm. to fight back. So look, I'm going to say it 18 times over the course of this season. We're in a pandemic. I feel like it's just I'm coming to grips with the fact that we're in a plague. Um, We are. And as we're in a plague, some of the leaders in this country um, have used this as an opportunity to advance xenophobic and racist tropes about who is responsible. We all the fuck know who is responsible for the fact that 150,000 people have died um, as a result of the negligence of this government. But there was one notable Asian figure in our political scene who suggested that if Asian people would just be more American, then they could probably avoid all of this hatred that was swirling around. Let's talk about that. I want you to describe this for our listeners, but also how can comedy be a tool for organizing and for movement? First of all, um, I accept your friendly amendment. No, I've not left the movement. I have just shifted my role in it, I would like to think. So basically, within the first week of most stay-at-home orders, especially the one in California, it became very obvious to me within that first couple of days that we were going to enter a new time of xenophobia and racism, especially yeah. against Asians. Very soon thereafter, I see in the news, a Washington Post opinion by Andrew Yang. He had the audacity to write a full out opinion article on a national, arguably international platform addressing Asian Americans directly. He was talking to me, Alicia. He was talking to me, Aijin. He said, Asian American, in order to combat the racism or xenophobia you might feel in America, 
it is your duty to be more American. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. no, no. no. And I know that there's and I know that one of the themes of your season is staying in your lane or knowing sort of what your role is, I feel like. And and I think that's one of the things that people have a, a problem with, especially if they're new to doing politics. It's like, when do I speak up? How do I speak up? You know, when is it my place? I don't yep. want to step on people's toes. Yep. And this was one of those moments where I was like, Jenny, you are called forth because <laughs> yeah. clearly yeah. the universe so called you forth. We sent out the Yang signal. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> His last name is Yang. People still people are trying to like talk about you and him in the same breath oh, on Twitter sometimes. Oh, oh. You know, he is deliberately talking to Asian Americans. He's talking to you and he's saying some asinine bullshit. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh my God, mm-hmm. I am so mad right now. Mm-hmm. Y'all, I don't think you understand. The moment I read that op-ed, I was foaming at the mouth. I was in a fugue state of rage when I was like, I have to do something. I have to say something. I'm going to start making a sign. Please honk if you won't hate cry me. I'm just going to start doing that. Please honk if you won't hate cry me. I've made it red, white, and blue. So I said, you know, I took the premise. I said, okay, Andrew Yang wants us to be more American. Let's test that premise. Let's test Mm -hmm. that thesis, okay, that Mm -hmm. argument. To be more American, therefore, you will not face racism. Let's do it. Honk if you won't hate cry me. Let me put Mm -hmm. some red, white, and blue on that. Mm-hmm. And then as I did that, I thought through what I was going to do. I went outside. I, I had no one involved. We were all masked up. I was like, I'm not trying to breathe on people. I'm not trying yeah. having them breathe on me. So I shot this video by myself and it was very cathartic for me. Number mm-hmm. one, because I was able to make fun of what he was trying to say. Number two, the responses I got were incredible. While I was shooting, there was a mother and a teenage son who went around the corner and stopped me and said, excuse me, excuse me. And for a second, I was like, "Uh uh-oh, are they going to be like trying to be racist? Mm -hmm. No, they said, excuse me. I just want to say, I saw your sign, honk if you won't hate crime me. And I honked, but then it made me tear up. You know, it really Mm -hmm. moved me. So I had to drive. We drove around the block three times just to find you because I just want to tell you, I'm with you. Mm. I want to tell you that I know I'm going to tear up just like talking about it. Mm. I I want you to know that I'm with you and that I don't think it's right what they're doing to you and that I, w- I want you to know that and she started tearing up mm. this is from like 10 feet away right from her car and her and her son was like nodding his oh. head really vigorously mm. and um I, I feel like this is a good moment it's like why are you an activist why did you get called to do this work and one of the insights I've gotten is that I think as a woman an immigrant I learned that I was not used to a level of compassion or kindness for my needs mm. For most of my life, you know, and I think that's why I do this work, because I think a lot of my friends who are activists as well, it's like we had problems in our home that we realized at some point were connected to larger forces. And therefore, if we couldn't fix shit at home, maybe we could change the policies, right, or the or the decision makers that that affected that. And so I think for me, I don't expect moments of compassion like that. That's on me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so when that happened, while I made this video, for me to put myself out there, which people were like, Jenny, why are you getting out in public? This was the first week of the pandemic. We didn't know as much about That's right. right the coronavirus. Why were you doing that? I felt unsafe for you. You know, I said, even if we're in a pandemic, we can't allow the people who have the bigger platform to shape and tell the story of who we are right now. We can't, if it's especially if it's wrong. Right. The stories we tell ourselves of what we're capable of, the stories of, of what we tell others about who we are, that's what allows us to make change and, and, and expand people's ideas of what's possible. And so it violated me on a very deep level. Mm-hmm. And so 
I just was like, man, fuck you, Andrew Yang. Sorry. That was just... You <laughs> facts on facts on facts on facts. <laughs> Listen, and it lets white supremacy off the hook. Okay. And in that moment, yeah. um, I was so grateful for your voice because I thought Thank it was you. some bullshit. I've seen it and I was like, you know, I just knows how I feel about this. Um, <laughs> but I was also like, this is an opportunity for the Asian diaspora to come and collect this man um, <laughs> in this moment where actually we're also trying to collect white supremacy right. because yes. the very reason that this conversation was in the center <laughs> in the first mm-hmm. week of the pandemic is because we have a leadership that is resurrecting the Crypt Keeper and, yeah. um, you know, and all the ideas that come with yeah. the Crypt Keeper. So if there was a perfect example of finding your lane, I feel like you led the way. Um, you set the tone you. for the pandemic. Really you were like, a lot. what? Like, I will. You literally came out like, I would take my earrings off, you know, give me some Vaseline because we... We're not doing this today, okay? <laughs> no, we can't. We can't. And that's the thing. It's, you know, I think a lot of, because of my background in politics, and then prior to that, being activated in college, yeah. in, I think with a lot of people who are college activists, right, it's always done in the context of a multiracial, yep. oftentimes, you know, intersectionality, everything, yep. that I can't betray these values that I care about. And I, I have to put that, push that out into the world. And and so as most organizers think of when there is hijinks and shenanigans like Andrew Yang's, it's an opportunity for organizing. And so, right. you know what I mean? So for me, I was like, I'm just going to try to say my piece and also leverage this to say, because I know a lot of Asian Americans listen to me and, I, and say, listen, I know you're afraid of the xenophobia, the anti-Asian racism. By the way, this is all connected and we still need to use this as an opportunity to be in solidarity with other groups who also see this violence on the daily. I think a lot of maybe young Asians today might not understand that there's actually a really long history of anti-Asian racism and waves of it that have really defined the experience of Asian immigrants and Asian communities in this country. And I mean, when I was in college as a student activist, the way I became an activist was when a 16-year-old Chinese immigrant boy was killed in his backyard by the police when he was playing with a BB gun. Shot point blank. His name is Yongshin Huang. Wait, where was this? In Brooklyn. Oh, oh my gosh. In 1995, there was a campaign to try to win justice for Yongshin Huang, who's 16 years old, playing in his backyard with his friend and a BB gun and was shot point blank in the back of his head Mm -hmm. uh, by a police officer. And that was part of one wave, but there were so many waves before. And I think it just has different expressions, but I think a lot of people think it's because the Chinese flu, right? Right. When you're addressing Asian American audiences and you're knowing that you're organizing them and you're a storyteller, how do you tell that story in a way that brings people in calls people up, right, to action, and also to action in a way that is about that broader we, right, that is in solidarity with Black folks who are fighting for their lives, with all the communities that are essentially being terrorized by white supremacy right now. Yeah. People live with a lot of individual hurts, right, in in their lived life that make them think that other groups might not be in solidarity with them as Asians. Mm-hmm. And I think I think I try to inoculate them, right? Sort of using organizing language since we're all here to that by saying, you know, yes, you might feel like 
maybe you don't think other groups are deserving of your solidarity. I get that. But this is the real game that we need to be playing, right? There's anti-Blackness. There's, you know what I mean? Like, so so how do we take steps of where we are? It's always the starting where we are part, you know? Because yeah. people feel overwhelmed, I feel like, from, you know, to be an activist, you know? Sometimes I don't even call myself an activist. I'm like, listen, I'm just like everyone else trying to do something. Mm-hmm. I just might have had more experience or education on it. But That's like, right. to me, it's all about how do we make it accessible, you know? That's right. That's the whole theme of this season is is about making it accessible and helping people see that we're all just out here trying to find our place yeah. and, and make this country live up to its potential. Yeah, we got to start where we are. And, and also, I also like to sort of invoke the kind of myths and stories that we like to tell ourselves sometimes as East Asian Americans, right? right? That like, if we, if we just come to this country, work hard, get good grades, you know, get a good fade, <laughs> yelp our food on, yelp our food yeah, I can't. I on won't. the weekend. <laughs> Get a cute girlfriend who has a high-pitched voice. But you know what I mean? That like, we're going to see happiness, right? And there's a sort of a a narrative that we've told ourselves as East Asian Americans that if we just become these young professionals who can enjoy the spoils of American consumerism and capitalism, that we'll be happy. And I think what happens is, and I know this from college students I talk to, they leave college, they get that accounting job, they get that engineering job, and they are not happy. I had straight A's. I got into Harvard and MIT for grad school. I got scholarships for everything. I literally gave the checklist for my parents to make them feel like their immigrant journey was worth it. And still, I was depressed. Still, I wasn't happy. Still, I was searching. And so I'm telling you right now, I mean, sure, I, I like yelping delicious food on the weekends too, you know? <laughs> Five stars, you know, Five whatever. Stars. Four stars in the neck and looking folded right. You know what I mean? Like th- those are some of the things the things I talk about when I talk to Asian Americans. It's important. And actually there are cross-community conversations to be had right now as well. And you know, I'm not Asian. However, oh, wait, I was really uh, yeah, for sure, for sure, for sure. <laughs> You're kind of honorary, though. Don't let the, the platinum blonde fool you, okay? But I am in solidarity. And I would just like to say here that I think that sometimes, especially in moments of sharp crisis like this, finding your lane is about figuring out how you can contribute and also figuring out how we can have each other's backs, yeah. right? Yes, yes. <laughs> and I was so grateful for this conversation because it's a conversation we have in Black communities too about not performing for whiteness, but claiming actually mm-hmm. our own culture for ourselves, designed by ourselves, and using that as a foundation from which we resist and mm-hmm. reform and rebuild, right? So, yeah, you know, in this case, the one who shall not be named was out here talking about, well, we're being attacked because we're not being American enough and we need to wear fucking flag pins and show everybody that we're down for this project, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and in Black communities, we're having a similar conversation, especially when one of our folks is killed either by police, either by violence that's happening inside of our communities. There's always a conversation about who deserves dignity. 
And Mm. if we don't make those stories clearer for ourselves and clear about who gave us those stories, are those ours or were those given to us for a purpose and a function? We can't fight back well. So I guess my question would be, in a moment like this, where there are so many crises and there's people Mm. out here who are like, I know that something is wrong, kind of like the mom and the kid who circled the block three times to come and find you. If they were going to come back to us right now and say, Jenny, how did you find your lane? And how can I make sure that we're connected enough so that we can't be divided no matter what they throw at us? What what kind of advice would you offer? One of the most important lessons I learned as a young college activist was Rita Burgos, who organized with uh, Bus Riders Union, I believe, Mm -hmm. uh, came and visited us because uh, she also attended Swarthmore College like me. Mm-hmm. And I was a young buck out there, excited. And I remember she came in hot and mm. strong. Mm. And she said, what are you all doing? And we're like, oh, we're kind of doing this and that. And she's like, why are you not doing more? And we're like, why is she making us feel so uncomfortable? <laughs> mm. And then she said, what you're doing here right now is a very small scale. What's going to matter is what you're going to try to do out there. Okay. You can play here, which is fine. And you can learn things. But I need you to think about yourself in the context of running the marathon and not the sprint. She she was agitating us, right? She was like trying Mm. to get us to feel uncomfortable and question ourselves. Mm. And I think I always remember that because I said, well, if I'm committed to this, if I say I'm committed to this, then I'm here for the marathon and not the sprint. And so I I need to figure out out what that means. And to me, it's a lot of, if you commit to that, it's a lot of internal work, Mm -hmm. educating yourself just regularly. This is just a part of your life now, right? This question of, okay, so... There are stories that we tell ourselves that we need to be really critical Mm -hmm. of. And I think we need to replace those stories with something new, right? With like a new story, right? Yeah, we can't just tear things down. We got to build. And I think part of surviving both the sprint and the marathon is having those stories to hold on to. And Mm. I feel like your work, your incredible comedy writing and storytelling is giving us a new story. And Mm -hmm. so I just want to say thank you for that. First of all, huge gratitude and big hearts. Tell us about the new story that we need to be writing and holding and that we can kind of call forth. For me, the biggest gift that comedy has given me is saving my life because it is a place for me to uh, channel any despair into a creative process where I could try to actually counteract that with joy it's a gift. I get to make people feel more understood and it's the way out. You know what I'm saying? It's the way Uh out. I'm a hundred percent happier as a comedian than I was positioned as a director in the labor movement because there's an ability for me to speak to different audiences and to adapt. You know, for example, during the pandemic, I've got obsessed with playing the Nintendo Switch video game, Animal Crossing, the cutest game ever. It's like a Sims, but with cute little cartoon characters, everyone was getting obsessed it was the thing that you know got me going the next morning rather than just be depressed. And because of that, I was like, you know what? What if I started a comedy club inside my little Animal Crossing island? And then therefore, I've started a show there that people can watch on Zoom. And I don't think you understand how many messages every single time I do the show of people who are just like, Jenny, that was the most fun I've had this entire pandemic. Mm. Mm. That is so beautiful. So finding your lane is not just about finding joy and happiness, but it can save your life and it can save other people through a pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing. I get overwhelmed all the time. Like, oh man, 
I, I wish I could like do more like Alicia or iGen. Like it's all about that comparing thing. And it's like, no, like what are you doing given where you're positioned? If you are that accountant with the Fade and the Jordans who yelped your food, That's what is it that you can do in your life to change your habits or to add one more thing or to talk to five more people about something that you realize is really important that you want them to think about? That's huge. If every single person does that, I think that's what's powerful. Like in, in Comedy Crossing, part of our show is it's a free show, but so that I don't feel helpless when George Floyd got murdered. I said, let's make this a, a way for us to very nimbly collect donations and support the funds that are not being supported who, are, who might be smaller, right? So we've raised about $20,000 now since June. That's and amazing. So I'm very proud of that. I, that's my way of contributing something. I know it's not everything, but I know given where I'm positioned, I can do this. I can say, there are 500 people in the Zoom meeting. I know you're laughing. If just every single one of you donates $5, I yep. know you can afford it. Yep. I know you can do it. Each of those $5 got to $20,000. Yep. So I think that's what's that's what's cool. It's like, start where you are and bring other people along because you're, we're just much stronger together. Jenny, you, you, you. We needed this. We needed this. I I needed this. this. Yeah, this just gave me so much life. I will be your court jester for for your really hardcore work. And especially over the next 80 days, if you could just make sure your calendar's free because we're going to yeah, need some you Oh, 100%. Laughs. We don't need you. If you need to just have a little a little sesh, the three of us, <laughs> yes. you know, t- okay. I'll be like, tell me what you need. Facts. All right. It's Maybe on. we can even do karaoke. <laughs> oh, my God. Ooh. It's hard. It's hard to coordinate that over, over Zoom. The timing. Yeah. It's tough. I know. But, yeah. but there's ways. I'll figure it out. <laughs> so... People can find you at Jenny Yang TV on all the socials. Yep. And we love you. Thank you for I'm joining so us and really like lifting it off. Yes, with a bang. we love you so much, Jenny Yang. You are the very best. And to all of mm. you lovely listeners, write to us, tweet us, tell us about how you are making your way through the storm. Because my friends, we thought we were in a storm before and wow, we really <laughs> had no idea. Follow us at Sunstorm Pod on social media and tweet us at Ijen Poo and at Alicia Garza. Hashtag Sunstorm. We cannot wait to hear from you. And until next week, see y'all soon. Sunstorm is a project of the National Domestic Workers Alliance in collaboration with Participant. Sunstorm is executive produced by Alicia Garza, Ijen Poo, and Christina Mevs Apkar. Sunstorm is produced by Amy S. Choi and Rebecca Lehrer of the Mashup Americans. Producers are Shelby Sandlin, Mary Philip Sandy, and Mia Warren. Original music composed by Jen Kwok and Jody Shelton. I feel like, too, um, you know, not that this is the time to, like, blow smoke up your buttocks, but... <laughs> not the buttocks! <laughs> the buttocks! <laughs> the buttocks! <laughs>